Today, we are continuing our, our series. It's our second to last week in our, our current series. But I want to give you a snapshot of what's going to happen um, after this. So after we finish this series, we're going to do, uh, this is part eight today, and we'll do part nine next week. That'll finish the series next week. Uh, the series we're going to start in two weeks, I'm super excited about because we're going to spend from um, uh, two weeks from now, almost to Christmas time, walking through a section of Luke called The Road to Jerusalem, just following the journey of Christ from Luke 9, chapter 9, verse 51, as he heads towards Jerusalem. And I'm going to be tying in a lot of stories and examples and illustrations from our trip to Israel, because our trip to Israel a month or so ago sort of tracked with the life of Christ and his, his journey to Jerusalem. So I'll be sharing a lot about that and uh, excited to dive into a gospel um, with you guys as we get into uh, the book of Luke for the fall semester. So today, we're continuing this uh, series called Lies Christians Believe. These are really lies that everyone believes, not just uh, Christians. Uh, so if I were to go out on the street telling people, hey, you know, God loves you, did you know that? Most would probably say, yeah, of course I know that. I mean, God loves everyone. What's the big deal? They might even say something like, well, he's supposed to love me. He's God. And God's, as we say at Impact, he is perfectly perfect in every way. And so we would say, of course God's supposed to love me. He's perfect. And uh, so most people, if they believe God exists at all, they just assume that God loves them, right? But what if I said a different statement? What if I said this statement? God not only loves you, but he likes you. Well, that carries a little bit of a different weight, doesn't it? Because when we say that God loves you, we see that as, you know, part of God's perfect character. He loves me because, you know, well, the Bible says he's supposed to. But to say that he likes you, that might be more difficult for us to believe. So here's the lie that we're looking at today. I don't think God likes me. I think many of us have felt this, believe this. Um, again, you might think that you know, yeah, I know God loves me. Like, you know, the Bible talks about that. Church talks about that. But it's a different thing. It carries a different weight for you to hear the statement that God likes me. And many of us think that we can't even, we would never even say this kind of, the opposite of the statement because we, we have a hard time thinking that God delights in us or that he even likes us at all. We, we just think he loves us because he's supposed to love us, because he made us, he's obligated to. But many of us struggle with this statement, I don't think God likes me. This might be resulting from past sin. Maybe you're just, you keep thinking about like, you know, things you've experienced, things that you've done, and you just think to yourself, there's no way that God delights in me. He, he just can't. Or maybe it's just current circumstances or past circumstances, and you or your family is just going through intense suffering and you think to yourself, there's no way God likes me. There's no way he, he's, he's fond of me or delights in me because of what I've been experiencing, what I'm currently experiencing. And uh, we might feel he's forgotten about us. The nation of Israel felt this way at times. Um, it, the background of Isaiah chapter 49 was that the nation is living in exile, away from their, their land. And this statement sums up how they would have felt. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. And I know that you have felt, you've been in a similar place. where You have felt this or you have sensed this. 
um, in your own life. And then the next verse is God's affirmation to the nation where he says in verse 15, can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. So not only did God create them as a nation, but he sets up this covenant relationship with them as a nation of Israel. And this is a powerful image of what God thinks and feels about his people. And in the same way, I love the language here because in the same way that a mother cares for her own baby, that is how God feels towards his creation. You will see, I know your parents tell you this, they, will say, they say things to you like, when you become a parent, you will understand. Are you guys sick of hearing that statement? You've heard that statement a lot, haven't you? I heard it when I was young, and I never, I, I know it's true, but I was like, just stop, just stop saying that. But it is true whenever you, you have kids, there is this whole new category of love that you never knew before. You know, like when you're in junior high and you have like those little relationships start to develop and you start to, like you kind of get introduced into that slowly, right? And then later on it ends up becoming marriage, obviously, hopefully. And uh, that, that sort of happens slowly throughout time. But the parent-child relationship, it's like you're, you're pregnant and then like there's this baby and suddenly there's this whole new category of love that you've never experienced before in your life. And you never knew you had it in you. And now God has just placed this in you. And you see this little baby that you love and care for so much. And this is the way that God describes his love for his people. This is not just a God who is loving out of obligation. Or just loving because it's theologically he's just supposed to. But this is how he describes how much he cares for his creation. Now, we might know this in our minds, but this truth needs to sink deeply into our hearts. And uh, what happens when we don't believe that God has this affection for us is that we spend our lives trying to earn it, and we call that self-righteousness. And here's some aspects of what that looks like. So self-righteousness is our effort to become righteous before God by our own works. It's also uh, where the rules are always defined by us as far as righteousness goes. And we get to decide what's right and wrong sometimes. And then we believe if God likes us, if we follow the rules the way we've set them up in our minds, we believe if he likes us, then God will do whatever we want him to do. But this this road of self-righteousness has a deep ditch on either side of that road. And here's what it looks like. There's arrogance on one side and there's burnout, spiritual burnout on the other side. And I'll talk about arrogance first. Because if you live up to this self-righteousness as you and I define it, then it simply leads to arrogance and pride. If you follow all the rules and you think in your mind you're successful at that, it's just going to puff you up with pride. And this is the kind of person who's always, always evaluating everything always critical of everything. Maybe it's a person, maybe it's a church program, maybe it's uh, just other people. 
Um, you know, nothing is ever, like, deep enough for them. You know, the sermon's always too shallow. The small group discussion is always too shallow. Um, this kind of person, I've never seen this kind of person really last in the body of Christ for that long because nothing is ever good enough. Nothing is ever, you know, meets up to their criteria. And this is where arrogance can take us. And I will tell you that in the past, when I have seen students walk through with this mindset, it has never ended well. It's never ended well when that's been the mindset. Here are some warning verses. Um, and I'll tell you, last night, I don't know why I did this, but I had this box in my house. Uh, when I was about probably 15, 14, 15, um, I just started recording, re- recording insights in a journal. Um, listen, it was not a diary. It was a journal. And it had, like, verses and stuff in it. And I would, like, write in there, like, what I'm praying about, what God has shown me through his scriptures. And, and yeah, I would include some just life stuff as well. And so last night, for some reason, I got this thing out. I was looking back through it. And I would encourage you guys to do the same thing for a few reasons. Number one, it's always really good to remember what God has shown you throughout your life. And it's so cool to go back as a, at my age now and then go back and look and see what I wrote when I was 15 years old and to get inside my mind back when I was that age because it helps me understand you better, my own kids better, and it's also just great, a great testimony of God's faithfulness. And whenever I feel like I'm apathetic and dry in my faith now, I can go back and read those things and say, man, where is that childlike faith that I once had? You know, and it's, it's a great thing for you to, to look back and remember. But it's something I noticed last night as I'm reading through parts of my journal from back when I was 15 or 16 years old is that there was this real self-righteousness in me because I'm writing about people that I know. I can't believe that so-and-so did this and this and this. And I'm kind of couching it in my journal like I, you know, I'm praying for them and I'm, uh, you know, I, I care about them, I love them, I care for them. That's all true, but there was also a lot of self-righteousness that I was reminded of that I still struggle with today. And so it's a reminder again that I can't, I'm never complete. Like, you're never complete. And so we can struggle with self-righteousness in these ways. And here's a couple of verses for people to deal with this. Proverbs 16, 18 says, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And then 1 Peter 5, 5 says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. We've got to be careful in a sermon about God liking us or delighting in us that we don't ignore sin or ignore pride. We can't do that. Because if we're prideful, I mean, God is going to come against us. The Scriptures tell us that. So if arrogance is one ditch, then the other, of course, is burnout. Here's a statement from Shane Pruitt on both of these. He says, arrogance is a mask for insecurity, for feeling inadequate. Burnout is finally acknowledging your insecurity and inadequacy and then deciding to throw your hands up and say, what's the point? I'll never measure up. I'll never have victory. So why even try? I quit. That's burnout. The ditch of burnout is common among people like in my position, like in career ministry. It's very common. There are very few people that I know that I was serving with 20 years ago that are still doing this today because burnout's a real thing. In fact, I would tell you that the first 10 plus years of ministry, um, I was here at TBC, and you know, I would go to conferences like once a year, like across somewhere in the U.S., I'd go to a, a, a pastor's conference. 
And I would hear speakers talk about how, you know, I know everybody here in this room, like you're all just burned out and you're kind of riding on fumes right now and, and it's, it's like the, you're hanging by a thread. And they would describe this dynamic to pastors and I would sit out there as like a 25, 30, 35-year-old person, pastor, and in myself I'd be like, that's not really where I'm at. I kind of feel like I'm in that place. And I almost had this arrogance about that, like, you know, that's where you are. So it's things to be you, but that's not really where I am. And then um, a few years ago, it began to hit me. As things became more difficult in ministry, as many of you know, as Gary's illness progressed here at our church, uh, and his eventual death, and then, you know, church staff transitions, and then, uh, then of course, uh, followed up by COVID. That was lots of fun. And, uh, and then church division about COVID, and then uh, church division over politics and all that came with that, and, and racial strife in our nation, and all that comes with that. It, it just felt like there was just this big weight just on everybody during that time. And, uh, and so I began to think about that as it relates. Now, listen, listen, I'm not going anywhere. I love what I do here. I'm just trying to pull back the curtain for you and let you see into my thinking that I've seen, I've now seen what all those people were talking about and how easy burnout can happen. But I've also seen something else, how arrogant I was to think that I was above all that. You see, arrogance and burnout are closely related to each other. It's different fruit, but the same tree. They both grow on the tree of self-righteousness. Shane Pruitt says it like this. He says, self-righteousness leaves a wake of people who are either so arrogant they don't need God anymore or so burned out they don't care about God anymore. And whether they realize it or not, it all started from a place of wanting God to like them. But here's the good news, is that true Christianity is different than that. It doesn't lead to a ditch, but it leads to a life of freedom only found in the love of God, the love of Christ. I know we talked about, I feel like I've discussed this a lot lately, like whether the main service or even down here, but Christianity is the opposite of every other religion. Because when man invents religion, it's always workspace. This is how I know that Christianity is true because men would never invent a grace-based religion. It doesn't make us look very good. So many years ago, there was a conference somewhere in the world, I think it was over in Great Britain, on world religions, and C.S. Lewis was asked by these other people at this conference, what makes Christianity unique? And this was his answer, very simple. He said, grace. He says, grace makes it unique. Grace is God's unmerited favor, meaning we can't earn it, but God gives it to us as a gift. And it's really popular today to hear statements like, you know, we all worship the same God just in different ways, or all religions are the same, they're all going in the same direction, just taking different paths. Many will say that today. But this really can't be true, because how can they all be true if they contradict one another? So two opposite statements can't both be true. So Christians believe that Jesus Christ is God. Other religions don't believe that. And so both of those things can't be true. Simultaneously, he's God, he's not God. So what do other major world religions believe? 
Well, this is perfect timing because we just came from our Houston mission trip uh, two weeks ago. And I love the chapter that, in the book that we're going through right now because he, he lays out um, like eight different religions. I'm just going to talk about three today. Uh, that's all we have time for today. And, um, and we had a chance to go on the last day of our trip to Houston to three different temples in one morning. We went to a Buddhist temple, a, a Hindu temple, and also a mosque. And you might ask the question, why are we doing that on a mission trip? We're going to establish relationship with these people, with the organization that we're, we're, we're serving with in Houston, so that they can hopefully reach them with the gospel. But it also helps our students understand why they believe what they believe. And it's a great chance for them to see um, these other faiths and how I think they fall short of what I think sets Christianity apart, and that is, of course, is grace. And uh, so I'll cover just a few here. So um, we went and visited a mosque as part of our uh, thing in, uh, in Houston. And for Islam, the purpose of life is to please Allah, which is the name for God, so that you can gain paradise. So they believe that when you, you hit puberty, there's an account open for you, and Allah keeps record of your good works and your bad works. And based on how they weigh out is how you get to be in paradise. And at the mosque we went to, one of the guys from the organization we were serving with, Glocal Mission, he, he asked this question. He said, he asked of the imam at the, at the mosque, he said, so how do you know in Islam if you've done enough good works to gain paradise? Is there ever like security? Do you feel secure ever in your, your faith? And their leader said, well, yeah, you just, you just do the five pillars of Islam. That's how you know. So you express faith in Allah, and you confess that Muhammad is his greatest prophet. You give to the poor. You pray five times per day. You fast during the month of Ramadan, and you go on a pilgrimage if you can afford it. Those are the five pillars. And he said, if you've done those, well, then, yeah, you're, you're good. But there's, like, no, there's no, like, intimacy or adoption with that version of God. It's just a transaction. I, I'm going to do for Allah so that Allah will do for me. And that's really all it is. It's all workspace. Then we go to the, we went to a Buddhist temple. And um, for those that went, that was an interesting experience, right? Students, like the ones that are in the room here, they're kind of like, that was a very strange thing because we go in and there is a, a Buddhist monk there to meet us. And I'm not, I don't think he really knew why we were there. He didn't really know. He probably assumed we're Christians, but not really sure. Like, I think he thought that we were there to, like, explore the Buddhist faith. And so he tries to walk us through this, like, meditation and, like, how they'd meditate. And I'm sitting there, guys, like, you don't need to do this. Like, just, just pray for him while we do this, whatever he's going to have us do. And, and we're not doing some Daniel moment of, like, bowing down to some. We're not doing that, obviously. And so he's up at the front of this, this massive, really ornate Buddhist temple, and he's showing us, like, how Buddhists meditate. And we're just kind of sitting there like, we're just going to sit here and pray for him while he does whatever he's going to do. But it was a very strange experience. You can ask my students later on. There was this one part where it got really weird. And I forget what he said to set this up, but he said something about, it was just, just utter quiet, like just totally quiet. And he's kind of singing and humming up at the front. And he starts saying things like, you know, become, become one with your body and, and empty yourself of all distracting thoughts. And he starts saying this progression of statements, I guess, to get us to think about our bodies. He, was, he goes, 
hair and nails and teeth and blood. And he's like walking us through like every aspect of our bodies and, and meat and bones. And we're all just sitting here. It's like the part of class when you're in class and it's really quiet and you're supposed to be serious, but you really want to laugh and you're like holding it back and everyone else is kind of doing the whole like, we're all doing that in this moment, right? Like 24 of us. And it's very difficult, but it was just a, a window in to like, this is their most meaningful experience. Like, this is it? This is what they do? And so it was interesting to watch this take place, but Buddhists don't really believe in a God at all. They believe in four noble truths. And they believe in the truth of suffering, the truth of the cause of suffering, the truth of the end of suffering, the truth of the path that leads to the end of suffering. You see a common theme here in Buddhism. It's all about just trying to kill suffering. The whole thing is focused on that. And if you can achieve that before you die, you've achieved this state of nirvana, they call it. There was a band, I think, with that name one time. And, uh, and, and so the whole point of it is to just get rid of suffering. And so they do that by killing desire and killing passion. And so there's this Buddhist monk up at the front of this, this massive room. And as he's telling us how important it was to disconnect from all the distractions of life and you know, empty ourselves and empty our minds and, and focus on being one with our bodies, then at the very end he stands up and says, he says, hey, don't forget to follow me on TikTok. I have 300,000 followers. He says this to us. I'm like, wait, cut out distractions? Is that what we're supposed to do? And so that's Buddhism, right? Then there's Hinduism, and they've got these sacred texts in Hinduism. They don't have some super authoritative body of knowledge in Hinduism, but they have priests called Brahmins. They believe in reincarnation. They believe in karma. And these beliefs determine one's destiny in this life and, of course, the next life, they would say. There are technically over one million gods in Hinduism. And this is why they believe in, in reincarnation and karma. So basically, if you live a bad life, the next life will be worse for you. This is why when you go to a country that believes in Hinduism as their religion, there's a caste system. And if you're in a certain lower caste, there is no belief about justice or let's help the poor because, you know what, you probably deserve it because you lived a bad life in a previous life. And so there's no help in the poor. There's no justice. It's just you, you have what you deserve. That's the religion. And so what do these all have in common? Well, it's for each one, people are trying to, to figure out how to please their God or their gods. In other words, how do they get their God to like them? That's the whole purpose. And this is the opposite of Christianity. We don't reach up to God because... God has already reached down by coming to us in the flesh. And most of us take this for granted. So why did Jesus have to come as fully God, fully man? Well, he came as a man to take our place as a substitute, but he had to be divine because the substitute had to be perfect. In other words, mankind, mankind can, can be saved by a good work, just not ours. 
but it's the good work of Jesus on our behalf. So Ephesians chapter 2 talks about this. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not, as a, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So even though we're, we're told that we're saved by grace, which is unmerited favor, and that comes through faith, we might be tempted to think of our faith as a work. Chase discussed this this morning over in the main service. We start to see faith as like, I've got to make sure I have enough faith and increase my faith. And we start to see faith like this thing we're like working for. It becomes a work in our, in our mind sometimes. So Paul reminds us that even our faith to believe is a gift from God, meaning we can't take credit for it. And our focus needs to be on the object of our faith, not the quantity or the quality of our faith. And listen, it's not that works don't matter, but they're a result of salvation, not a way to salvation. So when you are in Christ, God the Father looks at you, and he sees the perfect righteousness of Jesus, his own son. He sees you, think about this, he sees you with all the affection that he has for Jesus. And he not only loves you, but he delights in you. Shane Pruitt wraps it up with this statement. You can't work to get to God like, you can't work to get God to like you and at the same time rest in the fact that he already loves you. Eventually, one will conquer the other. Hopefully, at some point, the power of God's love will overwhelm you to the point that you would never settle for God merely liking you. Don't settle until you settle into the depths of the Father's love for you, and there you will discover that, yes, the Father is very fond of you. So we're going to go to breakouts. And so if you're new here, 